On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel, Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. All right. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, if you'll follow along as I read our text, beginning now in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. The late pastor and Bible teacher, Dr. Harry Ironside, was quite a character. On one occasion, he was on a trolley car in Los Angeles when a rather peculiar-looking lady got on board and sat down beside him. And she was dressed in what he described as red bandana handkerchiefs pieced together with a shawl over her head and a lot of spangles on her forehead. And he said as soon as she sat down, she, she asked if Ironside would like to have his fortune told and her fee was a quarter. Well, Ironside asked her if she was sure that she could do it. And he explained that that he was scotch, and and he hated to part with a quarter if she couldn't deliver the goods. (laughs) She looked a bit bewildered, but then assured him that she could reveal his past, his present, and his future. Just give her her the quarter, and, and she would tell all. Well, Ironside said, well, it's really not necessary because I've already had my fortune told. He said, I have a little book in my pocket that tells my past, present, and future. She said, you have it in a book? Yes, he said, and it's absolutely infallible. He said, let me read it to you. And He got his New Testament out of his coat pocket, and the fortune teller looked a bit startled, and he opened up to Ephesians 2, and he said, here's my past. And he read verses 1 to 3 about being dead in his trespasses and sins and living in the lusts of his flesh. And the nervous fortune teller said, well, I don't care to hear any more. But Ironside held her gently by the arm and said, oh, but, but I want to tell you my present. And he read verses 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's enough, the woman said. <laughs> she said, I don't want to hear any more. But Ironside said, oh, there, there's still some more. 
and I won't charge you a quarter to hear it. Here's my future, he said, and he read verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Well, by this time, the woman was on her feet, and Ironside couldn't hold on to her arm any tighter, and he's afraid he might be charged with assault if he did. So he let her go, and she fled down the aisle saying, I took the wrong man, I took the wrong man. (laughs) But Ironside was right. In verses 1 through 7 of this uh, paragraph here in chapter 2, it does reveal our spiritual past, present, and future. And last week, we looked at verses 1 to 3, our past. We looked at what all believers once were apart from Christ, and it's one of the most pessimistic pictures of human nature found anywhere. You remember Paul said that we were dead in in, in the trespasses and sin. That's the Bible's diagnosis of our spiritual condition outside of Christ. We were dead. And there may be some of you here this morning who were dead in trespasses and sins. But we were dead. We were not just spiritually misguided or weak or sick or ignorant. We were dead. We were were without any spiritual life whatsoever. I mean, all people are born physically alive but spiritually dead and separated from the living God. And Paul says we were dead in trespasses and sins prior to our conversion, just like every other human since Adam. We lived in rebellion against God by transgressing his commands and and sinning against him. And then in verse 2, Paul said, this is how we once walked. In other words, this was the manner of our living. This is how we lived our lives on a consistent basis. We walked in the state of spiritual death. Transgressions and sins was the very atmosphere in which we lived. Instead of following God, Paul said, first of all, we were following the course of this world. That is, we followed the patterns of thinking, behavior, and expectations of the world. Our our sinful activities were in line with the norms and values of the world system, which is entirely hostile to God. Secondly, Paul said in verse 2, we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Before we were saved, we were not servants of God. We were slaves of the devil. We were under the power and authority of Satan in the domain of darkness, living in defiant disobedience to God without hope. And third, Paul said in verse 7, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, we lived a life totally dominated by the sinful lusts and desires of the flesh and the mind. We were dominated by the world, Satan, and the flesh. They all played a part in our sinful condition, and we didn't even know it. Because in this sinful state, we couldn't turn from sin and seek after God. We couldn't even stop sinning. We were on a path of self-destruction. And even worse, Paul added at the end of verse 3, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We inherited Adam's sin nature and therefore were born into this world spiritually dead, morally decayed, separated from God, deserving of nothing but his eternal wrath. I mean, to be dead in sins is ultimately to suffer not annihilation, as some would have us to believe, but rather eternal condemnation and judgment under the furious wrath of a holy God. That was our spiritual condition apart from Christ. And it could not have been more tragic or more hopeless. 
As Christians, we always need to remember the darkness and the hopelessness of what we once were apart from Jesus Christ. But in saying that, there is also the danger of spending too much time looking back. In fact, Samuel Rutherford wrote, For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And that's good advice. You know, in these first three verses, Paul uh, wanted to remind us of what the gospel of God's grace in Christ has saved us from. And he wasn't trying to make us feel bad, but rather he, he's wanting us to appreciate more and more the greatness of the salvation that God has provided for us in Christ. And we won't understand the greatness of that salvation unless we understand how great the darkness was and how lost we were. And now as we come to verses 4 to 7, against the, the, the dark and, and, and dreadful background of the wrath of God, Paul changes course and turns from describing our past condition before conversion, being dead in sin, to our present condition after conversion, being alive in Christ. And this, this, this change, this contrast, is, is indicated by the first two words in verse 4. And these next few verses are are no doubt some of the most wonderful in all of Scripture. Because here in a few short words, Paul expresses the the very heart of of the glory of the gospel. And Paul shows us that the only hope for those who are spiritually dead is a miracle, and a miracle that comes from outside of them. Notice now the two beautiful words at the beginning of verse 4. But God, but God. I mean, the picture is more than bleak in verses 1 to 3. I mean, we we were no better than anybody else. We were spiritually dead, enslaved to the world, the flesh and the devil, destined to experience God's wrath, which would have been fair and just because we had all offended a holy God with our trespasses and sins, and we were absolutely unable to do anything to save ourselves. I mean, what a wretched condition we were in apart from Christ. What a horrible destination we were headed for, an eternal hell under the just wrath of God. But that was our condition and it is the spiritual condition of all men and women apart from Christ, and they are hopeless and helpless, absolutely unable within themselves to change their condition. And what a frightening picture. And if all of this is true, and it is, can there be any hope for us? I mean, how can, can anyone in such terrible spiritual condition possibly be saved? I mean, it all seems so hopeless, and it is if salvation depended upon our own efforts because dead people cannot give themselves life. But God. But God. I mean, those two words immediately bring light into the darkness and hope into the hopelessness. The glorious truth that God saves us in and despite our guilt and shame is taught by Paul in these two amazing words, but God. We were dead in our sins, but God. I mean, these two words change everything. And I certainly hope that each one of you have experienced them for yourselves. Lloyd-Jones 
said, these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. The gospel tells of what God has done, God's intervention. It is something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us what wondrous and astonishing, or that wondrous and astonishing work of God. So when we were beyond help and without hope, Paul says, but God. And these two words declare that that though men are spiritually dead, helpless, in a hopeless situation, there is still a great hope because God himself has intervened to save us. You see, loved ones, our salvation was, is, and will always be entirely due to God's gracious and free intervention. I mean, as Jonah prayed uh, from the belly of the great fish, salvation is of the Lord. And it's easy sometimes to think or, or behave as though God was obligated to save us. But God was under absolutely no obligation whatsoever to act. He would have been completely, perfectly just had he let the entire human race perish in their sin. He was under no obligation whatsoever to save one person. But he chose to act. And why did God do this? Why would he do this? Because of his mercy. Because of his great love. Look back at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Mercy, pity, and compassion are roughly synonymous. In the Bible, mercy is extended to an offender in the form of forgiveness or to the suffering in the form of healing or other comfort. So mercy is compassion or forgiveness extended to someone who deserves punishment or harm. It's undeserved pardon. You could say that mercy is forgiving the sinner and withholding the punishment that is justly deserved. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And here Paul says God is rich in mercy. And the word rich means overabounding, without measure, unlimited. As one commentator said, though mercy has been expended by God for six millennia and myriads and myriads have been partakers of it, it is still an unexhausted mine of wealth. And that's exactly right. God is rich. He is overabounding in mercy. His mercy is without measure. His mercies are new every morning, the scriptures tell us. And God's merciful character is clearly seen throughout the scriptures. When Moses asked to see God's face, God told him he couldn't because no man can see God and live. But then God told Moses to hide himself in the the cleft of the rock and and he would pass by so Moses could get a glimpse of his back. We read in Exodus 34.6, Then the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Later in Deuteronomy 4, Moses, speaking to the children of Israel, said, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. He's a merciful God. When David rehearsed God's many blessings, he wrote in Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
When Jonah, the disobedient prophet, tried to explain to God why he didn't go to Nineveh the first time, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I mean, the theme of God's mercy and compassion runs throughout the Old Testament and then into the New Testament as well, where the Greek word for mercy appears over 70 times. Just one example, Paul writing to Titus said in Titus 3.5, He, God, saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Mercy is not an arbitrary attribute of God. He is merciful. He is a merciful God and and a gracious God. He never needs to be persuaded to be merciful because He is merciful. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. I love what Vody Bauckham said. He said, the only reason God didn't kill us last night is because of His mercy. That's true. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. I mean, we owe everything to the God who is rich in mercy. And this really is is simply another way of saying that God was not obligated to save us. And our salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, Paul says in Romans 9.16. So why did God save us? Being rich in mercy, Paul adds this, look back at verse 4. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Great means relatively large in quantity or measure, uh, remarkable or out of the ordinary in degree, magnitude or effect. The word love here is, is the Greek word agape. It is the highest form of love. It is an unconditional, sacrificial love. A love that impels one to sacrifice oneself for the highest good of the object loved, regardless of response and regardless of the cost. It is not a feeling. It is an attitude and an action. It is a love that acts. It's the love that God is. The great love with which he loved us. I mean, how in the world can anyone come close to describing God's love? How do you you describe what is indescribable? I mean, Paul uses the phrase great love in an attempt to describe it, but what makes God's love great? Well, first of all, God's love is great because he's its source, and he is great. And the scriptures also tell us that God is love. Love is a core aspect of God's character. I mean, God's love is in no sense in conflict with His holiness, righteous, justice, or His wrath. All of God's attributes are in perfect harmony. I mean, God is the the perfect example of true love. And because He is infinite, his, His love, like all of His attributes, is infinite. So God's love is great because He's great. It's infinite because He is infinite. God's love is great because of the character of its objects. I mean, any love that could embrace people who are what verses 1 to 3 says they are must be great, right? I mean, he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses. 
I mean, Paul says something similar, doesn't he? In Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the greatness of God's love is seen in the objects of his love. But, but above and beyond that, God's love is great because it was God's love that gave to us a Savior. God's love acts. It sacrifices. So, for God so loved the world that He what? He gave His only Son. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, the immeasurable greatness of God's love can begin to be measured only by the cross of Calvary. God didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. I mean, the cross, as nothing else, manifests the sovereign, undeserved, overflowing, unfathomable love of God for sinners. The the love God freely and and unconditionally gives. The, The love that goes out not only to the lovely or the lovable, but the love that goes to his enemies, to those whom God's, in whom God's image has been marred by the ugliness and the vileness of sin, the, the spiritually dead and the morally decayed. There was not one ounce of deserving in any one of us. Because the Bible says that we were at enmity with God. We were nothing but judgment-deserving sinners. Yet, Paul tells us here that we were the objects of God's mercy and love. But why? I mean, God isn't obligated to show mercy. He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. No one at anywhere at any time has had a claim on God's mercy. By nature, we are children of wrath, just like the rest of humanity. But why then did God set his love upon us when we were dead in trespasses? Why? Well, the biblical answer is simply because of his sovereign love. And we all, we want to search for a reason in ourselves that God did this. No. There is no reason in us, for God to have done this. It is simply because of his sovereign love. It's the same reason he chose Israel. Simply because he chose to love them. It pleased God to do so. It pleased God to love us because of the great love with which he loved us. He loved us is past tense indicating that even before we were created and before the creation of the universe, in eternity past, He loved us. I mean, as Paul explained earlier, writing that in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. There is nothing in us that caused God to exercise His mercy toward us except His sovereign love. That's all. It's love. It's the Father's love that is the source of His mercy to us. That's the glory and the wonder of the gospel. 
I mean, Paul could not have been more clear concerning the source of God's saving activity toward us in Christ. It was not in us, but in Him. In Him and His incomprehensible love. And we need to pause and reflect for a moment to... uh, Reflect for a moment on the reason or cause why God so loved us that he sent his son to die for us. I mean, Paul is very clear here in Ephesians 2 and elsewhere that God loved us in spite of our unloveliness, not because of our loveliness. Nothing in us stirred God's heart to send his son. He sent his son solely because of his character as a loving God. When God considered the objects of his redemptive love, what he saw in us was only sin, rebellion, enmity, and resistance. And this is what so magnifies the love of God in Christ. It was while we were sinners, rebels, treasonous, It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. It was as helpless and ungodly people, not treasures, that God saw us. The only thing we we stirred in God's heart in our sinful condition was wrath. The only thing that we could have moved or induced or inclined God to do was to judge us eternally. And the fact that he gave his son in love was not because of anything in us that that he regarded as worthy of his affection, but solely because of his great and unfathomable determination to love those who were the moral antithesis of himself and enemies of every single thing that he regards as holy and true and right. God is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, not because of anything in us, but simply because of his sovereign love. And that's all. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, I mean, just as Ephesians 2.1 began with our dire predicament here in verse 5, Paul repeats the fact that, that we were dead in our trespasses just to, to intensify and make greater the contrast between man's predicament and God's rescue. I mean, in spite of the fact that we were dead in our trespasses, uh, our wickedness, our spiritual lifelessness, our enmity against God were not barriers to the eternal purposes of God's love. And because of his rich mercy and great love, God didn't leave us dead in our trespasses. Rather, look at the rest of verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here we come to the main idea or the central theme of of these first ten verses. It's all about God. It's all about God and what He has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 5 and 6, Paul Paul declares that God made us alive together with Christ, raised us with Christ, and seated us with Christ. 
And we'll look at each one of these individually. But before we do, I want to draw your attention to the fact that after noting that God makes believers alive, there in verse 5, Paul pauses to introduce the element of grace. He says, by grace you have been saved. And although grace is going to be his theme in verses 8 and 9, it's as though Paul just can't wait to say it. He can't wait to get to the theme of grace. And so he interjects it here somewhat parenthetically, but he'll return to the theme in in more detail in verses 8 to 10, and we'll deal with it when we get to those verses next week, Lord willing. But for now, suffice it to say that to be saved by grace means that you don't deserve what God has granted to you. It's not something that happens because of who you are or what you've done or what you'll ever do, but in spite of what you are and in spite of what you've done. I mean, while other religions focus on concepts such as law or ritual, Christianity's key word is grace. It's because of God's grace that we receive life. We deserve God's wrath because of our sin, but He saved us by His grace or His unmerited favor. We were walking corpses. I mean, spiritually dead, living for the lusts of the flesh, but that all changed. God, because of His rich mercy and the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, look at what Paul says, He made us alive together with Christ. And the three phrases, made us alive, raised us up, and seated us, are all in the tense that signifies past completed acts. And so this is what God, through the gospel of His grace, has done for every believer in Christ. This is already done. It's so certain that it's spoken of as if it's already happened. And it's important to remember that at the moment of our salvation, when we put our faith in Christ, we were immersed into or or placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit so that now we are said to be united with Christ. You know, we're joined with Him. We're, We're one with Him. So much that we're said to be in Him. And as such, I mean, we're so identified with Christ that what is true of Him is true of us. So Paul says here, He made us alive together with Christ. Well, more than anything else, a spiritually dead person needs to be made alive by God. And Paul tells us here that God made us alive together with Christ. God made us alive. That's what it says. Notice what Paul does not say. God helped us to change. Or God helped me to do what is right. Or God helped me to overcome my weakness. Certainly God helps us do those things after we're born again. But not before he makes us alive. Paul said God made us alive. And the verb translated made alive together means to raise to life, to make someone alive supernaturally along with another or others. And this word is used only here and in Colossians 2.13, a parallel passage which describes man's spiritual deadness and the power of God bringing him to life. Paul wrote in Colossians 2.13, And you 
were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And the point is in, in both verses is simply that God initiates the salvation process. Because spiritually dead people cannot make themselves alive. It is God himself going to work upon our spiritually dead condition. Paul says it right here. God made us alive. God made us alive together with Christ. Just as God gave resurrection to life to Christ and raised him from the dead, he gave us spiritual life. He made us alive spiritually. We were spiritually lifeless, morally decayed, deserving of nothing but eternal wrath, in every way insensible to the beauty and the glory of Christ until God in sovereign mercy and grace brought us from spiritual death and darkness into spiritual life and light. He made us alive. And if you're a believer today, it is because God made you alive. I mean, were more glorious words ever spoken? I mean, Paul is defining here what has happened to a Christian in the most radical terms possible. We were dead in trespasses. God made us alive together with Christ. And Paul says the change that happens to a Christian is as radical as life from the dead. And according to Paul, being saved involves a spiritual resurrection. You were dead, dead in sins, dead to God, dead in condemnation. But God has given you life. God has given you life. What has happened to us spiritually is what happened when Jesus stood before the tomb and cried, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus rose from the grave and Jesus commanded that the grave clothes be removed. This is what happens spiritually to all of those Christ calls to salvation. I mean, there is the outward call that goes out to all men everywhere to come to Christ. But yet there is that inward call that God calls all who belong to him to come to faith in Christ. And we come. God makes us alive and we come. Self-help is not going to save those who are dead in, in trespasses and sin. You read all the self-help books you want. not going to make you spiritually alive. No one can crawl from the casket. They have to be made alive with Christ. In other words, we're going to put it in the... In the uh, the words of John chapter 3, we must be born again, right? So what we're talking about here is the doctrine of regeneration, which is another word for rebirth related to the biblical phrase born again. I mean, Christianity is not about becoming a nicer person, nor is it about starting a new religious routine. There are a lot of nice people who have started religious routines. In fact, they're very religious, but they are dead as a doornail when it's spiritually speaking. They are dead in their trespasses and sin. Because all that's happened in their life is an outward reformation. There's been no, no rebirth, no regeneration. 
So Christianity is not about becoming a nicer person or starting a new religious routine. It's about becoming a brand new person. One night, a a very religious man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, came to ask Jesus some spiritual questions. And you know the story. I mean, Nicodemus had a lot of religious knowledge. He was extremely religious. He was the teacher of Israel. But he was spiritually dead. And Jesus told him, I assure you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, you must be born again. God must give you life. How does that happen? I mean, how are we born again? Well, our spiritual rebirth is analogous to what happened in the creation of the world. Genesis 1 tells us that God created all things by what? His Word. In the same way, Peter says to believers in 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again through what? The living and abiding Word of God. God's Spirit applies God's Word to our hearts and gives us new life, spiritual life. He gives spiritual life to our spirits. You know, Peter says you have been born again. You have been born again. And we didn't give birth to ourselves. God did it. We were totally helpless and unable to bring ourselves to God and and no amount of religion, sincerity, church-going, generosity, or service could ever make us right with or acceptable to God. We were fallen, hopeless, and helpless. And James says in James 1.18, of His own will, of God's own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. God chose to give us spiritual birth and life. The initiative, the impulse, the incentive all come from God and are affected by nothing whatsoever outside of His own perfect will. And that is the only way spiritual life could be given to those who are spiritually dead. Regeneration could only happen by the sovereign will and power of God who is the only source and giver of spiritual life. As John said, but to all who did receive him. Well, what does that mean, John, to receive him? Well, he tells us. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born of God. God gives us spiritual life. God makes us alive. The new birth is monergistic. In other words, it is solely a work of the Holy Spirit. Sinners do not not cooperate in their spiritual births any more than infants cooperate in their natural births. I mean, Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, being born again is not a human work. It is the work of God. He made us alive. And the result of this regeneration is that we are made new. We pass from death to life. 
Lloyd-Jones explains it well. He said, Regeneration is an act of God by which a principle of new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. God, by His mighty action, puts a new disposition into my soul. And when we are born again, everything changes. Everything changes. I mean, to become a Christian is to be, a radically, is to be radically changed as a person. I mean, a Christian is different from non-Christians, different from the person he or she was before coming to Christ in faith. And that's how radical the new birth is. I mean, you cannot have the, the very Spirit of God invade your dead soul and give you new life and have it not affect your life. And the changes affected by Christ are not in the periphery, but they're at the very core of our being. We receive a new nature. I mean, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? What? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is what Ephesians is all about. God gives us, He made us alive. He gives us life. We're born again. We have a new nature, new desires. We're going to, to love God, love the things of God. We're going to love the Word of God, the people of God, the church of God. I mean, becoming a Christian is not like joining a country club or taking up a new hobby or, or making a career change. I mean, those things affect only one area of your life, but not the others. They're, they're add-ons which really don't define who you are. They're simply activities that you devote a certain amount of time to. But if you're a Christian, Christ is your life. For me to live is Christ, Paul insists. Again, quoting Lloyd-Jones. He said, if Christianity is not controlling the whole of your life, then you are just not a Christian. Christians are not people of whom it can be said that their lives are identical with everybody else. But they have an extra something in addition. No, to be a Christian, Paul says Paul, means that at the very center, at the very core of your being and existence, this new something has come in and controls everything. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary, shows how this changes every aspect of our lives. He writes, When God breathes new spiritual life into us, the work known as regeneration, we become something we were not before. We have a new life. That life is responsive to the one who gave it. Before this, the Bible meant nothing to us when we read it or it was read in our hearing. Now the Bible is intensely alive and interesting. We hear the voice of God in it. Before this, we had no interest in God's people. Now they are our very best friends and co-workers. We love their company and cannot seem to get enough of it. Before this, coming to church was boring. Now we're alive to God's presence in the service. Our worship times are the very best times of the week. Before this, service to others and witnessing to the law seemed strange and senseless, even repulsive. Now they are our chief delight. What has made the difference? The difference is ourselves. God has changed us. We have become alive to Him. We are new creatures. 
And this radical transformation that we're talking about in, in the new birth is not something optional. This isn't just something for you know, those who are going to be in leadership or you know, like there's some uh, other level of Christianity. No, this isn't optional. This is the new, the new birth. I mean, this radical transformation is something that all Christians must have experienced and know they have experienced it. I mean, Jesus said you must be born again. That's not just a subcategory of Christians. You know, the Barner Research, they list all the, you know, the people that are Christians, and then they, and they, they, they list out, you know, born-agains, as if that's one, just one category of Christian. There is no other kind of Christian. If you're a Christian, you must have been born again. And you must know it. If you don't know it, then there's been no change in your life. And if there's been no change in your life, then you're not a believer. The new birth is necessary to salvation. And you cannot be forgiven, you cannot be changed, and you cannot enter into heaven unless Paul, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.5, you who were dead in trespasses are made alive together with Christ. So how do you know you're born again? How do you know that you've passed from death to life? Well, the most basic uh, fundamental answer is that it's by the new birth that sinners repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by the, the Word and God's Spirit that anyone truly believes so that those who trust in Christ are born again and enter into a new life in which all the other blessings of salvation are certain to follow. And speaking of being born again, Lloyd-Jones used the illustration of a flower that's closed up at night. He said that the flower is closed up at night, its petals turned inward, and its face is closed to God. That is how our hearts and minds formerly were with respect to God. But the sun comes up in the morning and its rays strike the flower's petals. What happens? The petals open toward the sun and soak in its life-giving rays. This is what God has done with us. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 4.6 that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of the God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are now alive to God and our lives are turned to Him for light and salvation in Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be born again, to be made alive to God together with Christ. He made us alive. And God not only made us alive together with Christ, secondly, Paul says in verse 6, he raised us up with him. Raised us up with him. When Paul speaks of being raised up with him here in verse 6, he is not referring to Christ's resurrection from the dead, but rather he is, for, he is referring to Christ's ascension. When he ascended into heaven and, and took his place at the right hand of the Father, Paul's telling us that we are there in him. We were raised with him. We ascended with him. Although we still live on earth, we are now citizens of heaven. So though we're still physically in this world, 
Because we are seated with, raised with Him, we, we are no longer of this world. We're no longer slaves to the thoughts and desires of the world. We're no longer in bondage to the prince of this present evil age, that is the devil. We're no longer powerless before the temptations of sinful desires. Just as Christ ascended into heaven, we too are no longer ruled by worldly powers, but are under the authority of the kingdom of God. And this isn't an easy concept to grasp, really, but to the extent that we see our identification, our identification with Christ in heaven, we're going to live differently on earth. We're not going to be ensnared by all of the temporal things that the world has to offer. We're going to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at God's right hand, because that's where our true life is hidden. And the true Christian, Paul says, has been raised up together with Christ. There's no other way to serve and and worship God. You know, we can either live as if this present life is our ultimate destination, seeking to enrich and fill ourselves with everything we desire, as if there is no God and as if eternity is nothing but a mirage. Of course, the Bible says to such a person, you fool. Or we can believe the Bible's teaching that this life is not our destination, but only preparation for eternity to come. And our destination is in eternity, in heaven. And that's, Paul, Paul says, that's where we are, have been raised to with Christ. And so we're to live now as those whose hopes have been raised there together with Christ. We're to live like citizens of heaven. God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him. And thirdly, Paul says in the last part of verse 6, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 20, Paul said, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that after Christ had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And all that needed to be done for the salvation of sinners, Jesus did. And now he is seated in ruling, reigning power at the right hand of his Father in the heavenly places. And of course, the heavenly places speaks of the spiritual realm, the spiritual dimension or the unseen world of spiritual reality that we don't see but that is real and vital to our lives. And this includes more than heaven itself. The heavenly places encompasses the entire supernatural realm of God, His his complete domain, the full extent of His divine operation. It's the invisible realm where Christ is now ruling and reigning. And this is what Jesus was talking about when He said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is unseen and spiritual. And the staggering thing is, Paul, as Paul tells us, we're seated with him in the heavenly places. Obviously, we're not there, right? We're here. But that's our position now in Christ. God sees us as seated with Christ in the heavenly. That's our position. And we're to live accordingly. 
And even though we've not yet inherited all that God has for us in Christ, to be in the heavenly places is to be in God's domain instead of Satan's. It's to be in the the sphere of spiritual life instead of the sphere of spiritual death. So we're operating in a whole other realm. That's where our blessings are and where we have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and with all the saints who have gone before us and, and will go after us. This is, that's where all of our commands come from and where all our praise and petitions go. And someday we're going to receive the inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. And so positionally, Paul says, we're seated with God in Christ who is seated in triumph above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and, and, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God has put all things under his feet. And the implication of these words corresponds to Paul's triumphant statement from Romans 8-7, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is no one. And so the question is, why has God done this? Why has God done all of this for believers? Well, part of the answer has already been given. God has done so because he's rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. But the full answer as to why God has done this is in verse 7. Look at verse 7 where Paul says, It is so that in the coming ages, he, or God, might show, in other words, he might demonstrate, exhibit, or display the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so this demonstration of the riches of his grace is seen in the kindness that God has bestowed on believers in Christ. In other words, he lavishes his kindness on us by giving us spiritual life, raising us, and seating us with Christ. But this was not the ultimate purpose of God in saving us. And certainly salvation is very much for the believer's great blessing. Absolutely. But the ultimate motivation in God's heart for saving the spiritually dead for raising us and seating us with Christ was so that we might be trophies of His grace or channels through which the truth of the magnificence and the surpassing riches of His grace is made known to all creation throughout the ages. Ages is plural, which implies one age upon another like successive waves of the ocean as far, as far into the future as thought can reach. In other words, throughout time and eternity, the church, this community of, of pardoned rebels been made, who have been made alive by God is designed by God to be the masterpiece of His goodness, of, of His kindness. John Stott wrote, toward the end of my time as a theological student at Ridley Hall, Cambridge, The Reverend Paul Gibson retired as principal, and a portrait of him was unveiled. In expressing his thanks, he paid a well-deserved compliment to the artist. He said that in, in, in the future, he believed people looking at the picture would not ask, who is this man, but rather, who painted that portrait? 
And then he said, now in our case, God has displayed more than skill. A patient after a major operation is a living testimony to his surgeon's skill, and a condemned man after a reprieve to his sovereign's mercy. We are both exhibits of God's skill and trophies of his grace. And the ultimate purpose, the ultimate purpose of our salvation is to show the surpassing riches of God's grace and kindness toward us in Christ now and throughout all eternity. In raising and exalting Christ, God demonstrated the immeasurable greatness of his power. But in saving, raising, and exalting undeserving sinners like us, he also displayed the immeasurable riches of his grace and will continue to do so throughout eternity so that the whole of heaven will glorify him for what he has done in saving sinners. I mean, the angels themselves will marvel at the surpassing riches of God's grace when they see the company of the redeemed in heaven. You see, loved ones, our salvation is first and foremost a demonstration of the glory of God. As as Lloyd-Jones pointed out, Salvation vindicates the greatness and the character of God in a special way and in a manner which nothing else does. Satan's object in tempting Adam and Eve was to detract from the glory and majesty of God. But God allowed sin to enter this world in part because his plan of redemption revealed certain aspects of his holiness, justice, wisdom, mercy, love, and grace that would not have been known apart from the cross. It's mind-boggling, but we will play a part and displaying the surpassing riches of God's grace throughout eternity. So the reason God has showed us such grace is not first and foremost for our benefit, though it it is certainly a great benefit. The reason God has showed us such grace is so that we might be the demonstration of His grace forever. We will be trophies of His glorious grace. God will point to us and you know, say in effect, look what I can do with such a mess. But the fact of the matter is, not just Christians, but everyone, Absolutely everyone will ultimately glorify God. Whether you're a believer or not, you will glorify God at the end of this age and forever after that. And God's chief end is to glorify God. And being all-powerful, God will certainly achieve that end in each of our lives. But there are other things about him to glorify uh, than his grace. God is just, holy, and almighty. And these he will glorify in the eternal condemnation of sinners who reject the offer of his gospel. 
God will be glorified either way. In the demonstration of his love and grace, and also in the demonstration of his holiness and righteousness, his justice and his wrath. One commentator wrote, every person who has ever lived or will ever live must glorify God either actively or passively, either willingly or unwillingly, either in heaven or in hell. You will glorify God. Either you will glorify him as the object of his mercy and glory, which will be seen in you, or you will glorify him in your rebellion and unbelief by being made the object of his wrath and power at that final judgment. But either way, God will be glorified. And how much better for you to glorify God for his grace exercised in his kindness to you in Jesus Christ. You know, if you'll turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting your life wholly to him, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And I'm wondering... How many here this morning have never been born again? You've never trusted in Christ alone. I'm wondering uh, of you young people, how many of you have never trusted Christ alone for salvation? How many of you young people are just merely living out your mom and dad's faith because you still live at home? And I'm wondering how many moms and dads have never been born again. Perhaps just good moral people and religious, but never truly born again. How much better to glorify God in His grace, exercised in His kindness by trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Trusting him today as Lord and Savior rather than bowing before him as king and judge. Let me ask you something. Have you been made alive with Christ? Young people, have you been made alive with Christ? You know, when you come to church or hear the Bible preached or the Bible read or when you go to youth group, is it just boring to you? Are you there because mom and dad simply make you go or do you even go? That's an indication that you're probably not born again. You have no interest in the things of God. Have you been made alive with Christ? Mom and dad, have you been made alive with Christ? Or do you come to church simply to bring your kids, but you're not even committed to doing that? And your lack of commitment teaches your kids that the things of God are not a priority. They're not a priority in your life. Why would they be in your children's lives? You demonstrate no real love for the things of God or the people of God or the, or the preaching of God's words. So what makes you think you're alive in Christ? Have you been made alive with Christ? Are you born again? You know, if you cannot answer these questions with a yes, then by all means, 
by all means, run to Christ. Seek God until you can say yes. You must be born again. And you must know that you've been born again. You see, Paul wants us to know that because our salvation is totally of God, there's hope. There's eternal hope for all who are dead in their sins. And the dead can't raise themselves. They can't even decide to do so. They're dead. But the great and glorious news is that God is in the business of raising the dead. And if he's opened your eyes to your true condition as as a sinner under his just wrath, then you better flee to the cross. Flee to the cross and trust in Christ alone. I mean, he has a vast fortune of surpassing riches of grace for every sinner who comes to Jesus. And if you are a Christian, if you have received new life in Christ, well, God wants you to actually live in light of that fact. He wants you to actually live like you've received new life in Christ. That you are a new creature with new desires, new affections. God wants you to live in light of who you are in Christ. I mean, seeing your past and and what he did in raising you from death to life should absolutely fill you with gratitude and joy. You know, as a believer, seeing your your seeing your 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 present, you know, totally identified with Christ in heaven should should cause you to live as a citizen of heaven. In the world, but not of this evil world. Seeing your glorious future as a a trophy of God's grace should give you assurance and hope that even in the midst of, of, of trials or in the face of death itself, there's hope. Christ is king. Heaven is 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 for sure for those who are in Christ. And so as a believer, we should be praising and thanking God for his rich mercy, his great love, and the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Amen? If you've never trusted in Christ alone, listen, I urge you this morning. What we've read about last week and and today, what we've studied is true. These things are true. If you've never trusted in Christ alone, you are right now dead in your trespasses and sin, enslaved to the world and the devil. 
you are presently under the wrath of God, and if you die in your sin, you will experience the full fury of his wrath for all eternity. And I'm not trying to scare anybody. That's fact. And if you don't understand that, you'll never appreciate God's love and his grace. Because it is only against the background of the seriousness of your condition apart from Christ that that God's love and grace uh, is seen for what it really is. How great it is. I mean, this is no joking matter. This is life and death, literally. If you've never trusted in Christ alone, I I urge you today to come to Christ. Come to Christ. Put your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation. Don't trust in your religious routine, your religious activities. Certainly don't trust in, in your mom and dad's faith if you're a young person. God has no grandchildren, only children. And you must be born again. And if you're not, come to faith in Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel Reading, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love. That makes me see